Hello everyone, I'm your host of On The Margin, Michael Ippolito. I'm one of the co-founders of Blockworks. And today we are gonna be talking to Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy for just a phenomenally interesting conversation on her thoughts on the macro and digital asset ecosystem. We cover her thoughts on inflation, to the steepening of the yield curve, to yield curve control, and finally, what she thinks about Bitcoin and the developing digital assets ecosystem. Quick reminder, if you are listening to us on Apple, please make sure to give us a rating and a review. If you're listening to us on YouTube or Spotify or really any other platform, just make sure to hit that subscribe button. All right, on to the show. All right, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on to another Blockworks show. It is a real pleasure to have you here. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, There's so much interesting stuff going on. Uh, It's almost tough to know where to start. But one interesting idea that I've heard you talk about lately is this transition of what you call monetary dominance to fiscal dominance. So why don't we start there? Yeah, absolutely. And so if you look back in history, we spent 40 years or so, actually more than that, in a very uh, heavy period towards monetary policy, where most, you know, every time the Federal Reserve had one of their, uh, you know, meeting minutes uh, coming out, or I mean, uh, like, uh, you know, statements that they're going to change policy, the market watched it with bated breath. Uh, and now it's really, you know, that's still relevant, but it's still more, it's more now about the fiscal policy, right? So when we had previous recessions, fiscal response would be pretty small. We'd have automatic stabilizers kick in. We might have a small stimulus bill, but we weren't doing massive kind of direct-to-consumer stimulus efforts. Uh, and instead, we'd, we'd, we'd cut interest rates by the Federal Reserve. That was their normal policy tool. And then in the great financial crisis, we moved into quantitative easing, which, again, didn't really that didn't get out into the broad money supply. That didn't send checks to people. Homeowners weren't really built out. Uh, and instead, you just got a recapitalization of the banking system and kind of a reflation of, of, of asset prices. Uh, but now what we're seeing is, is direct cash handouts uh, in the form of stimulus checks, uh, PPP loans that turn into grants, uh, corporate uh, just pretty much bailouts, like just giving money to airlines and, and you know, to help keep their payrolls uh, open uh, and uh, the uh, extra federal unemployment uh, benefits. So we had those back last time, too, but they were something like an extra twenty five dollars a week. Uh, and so now it's, you know, add, add a zero to it and then more. Uh, and so it's a it's a it's a totally different world now. And basically, you have to go back to the 1940s to find a similar fiscal response to this. And of course, this time was due to a, a pandemic and last time was due to a war. Uh, and you know, but last time, of course, instead of sending checks to people, it was about just massive fiscal spending into infrastructure and into domestic manufacturing and, and things like that. And, and then also uh, when, when soldiers came back from the war, there was the GI Bill. right? So you gave them money to get trained and, and go to college, uh, depending on what they wanted to go through. And so we're basically we're, we're in a similar situation now in terms of fiscal monetary policy. And it's funny because in many ways, the, the 2010s, starting, uh, of course, in 2008, uh, looks a lot like the 1930s, starting in, in 1929. That whole period mirrored very closely where you had a banking crisis, a private debt bubble coming undone, a period of economic stagnation, a bank recapitalization, and then kind of this like sideways kind of weak, weak recovery. And then you kick into the next decade in the 40s. That's when you had the massive fiscal response. And then here in 2020, we're seeing a massive fiscal response. And so it's kind of like history rhyming. It's not repeating exactly, but it is rhyming. And it's just, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people are kind of looking back at the last couple of recessions or economic recoveries. And I think really the best era to look at for some of the kind of historical, I guess, just, just uh, kind of breadcrumbs of where this might go would be more like the 1940s, hopefully without the, the kinetic war, but just in terms of fiscal, fiscal and monetary policy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, 
it's a really interesting time in in markets. And and one thing that I'd like to understand your perspective a little bit more on is how does this shift from uh, monetary to fiscal in, uh, inform your views on inflation going forward? So there are a lot of uh, kind of very smart folks coming out in in macro land talking about um, this shift to secular inflation. And you've got uh, guys actually who were deflationists like Russell Napier for a long period of time kind of coming out and, and changing their opinion. And one of the key factors there is this kind of shift in political will. Right. So we've had, you know, quote unquote, money printing in the U.S. for a long time in the form of programs like QE. But that hasn't necessarily translated to broad money supply growth because you haven't really seen fiscal coming in a big way. Uh, but now that might be changing. Right. Because, you know, Biden is in the process of passing a, a one point nine trillion dollar stimulus plan. It looks like there's even more infrastructure down the way. Um, so talk to me a little bit about how these these fiscal plans could actually translate into more money supply growth and how that might inform your view of inflation. Yeah, I'm definitely in the inflation camp uh, as far as this kind of debate goes. And it's mainly because of that fiscal element. And so a lot of people are pointing out that QE is not inflationary. And that's mostly true. If you just do QE, all it does is it expands the amount of base money in the system. But there's no transmission mechanism, or at least there's weak transmission mechanisms to get that out into the broad money supply. And so, for example, when the Federal Reserve did QE back in 2008, you know, anyone looking at their checking or savings account, they weren't their their accounts weren't going up. I mean, that broad money was still just you know flat. Uh, and but now, when they expand their their uh, you know their reserves, when they expand the amount of base money, the the treasury goes and then injects it right into the the economy. And there's a couple ways to do it. I mean, you can like Russell Neighbors focusing a lot on the on guaranteeing bank loans, which is essentially what PPP was. Uh, but then there's also just bypassing the bank system directly and just set, literally sending checks to people. And so what I've described it with the analogy of like nuclear keys. It's like if you watch a movie and they're going to launch, the president says launch a nuclear strike. And you have like two generals like putting keys in at the same time and turning it. And that's kind of how they, and because it, it has some like, in like say nuclear subs, you need like a commanding officer and then you need like the executive officer. They both have to like give their, their keys. And with the, when it comes to money printing and inflation, uh, it's kind of like that for the United States with the treasury and the fed, they each have one of the keys. So the treasury uh, can uh, they can spend money into the economy, but they have to issue bonds to do it. And so whoever buys those bonds is basically taking their dollars, giving them to the government. The government is then putting them back somewhere else in the economy. And so you're just moving money around. On the other hand, the Federal Reserve can create brand new base money, but then they have very limited ways for what they can do with it. They can just buy financial assets with it. They can't send that out to people. They can't get that into the broad money supply very effectively. But when you have both of those you know, keys activated together, where the Treasury is spending into the economy, they're issuing bonds, and then the Federal Reserve is creating new base money and buying those bonds on the secondary market, you're, you know, you're basically spending money into the economy that you did not extract from the economy. And that's where you're, you're, you're more prone to get inflation, assuming that the magnitude is sufficient to, to, to cause that. Because we do have a variety of deflationary forces from technology, debt, demographics, uh, a multi-decade period of offshoring. We have all these deflationary forces. So if you just do a massive inflationary policy response, if it's big enough, that's that's what can get you inflation. No, yeah, it really does seem like it's becoming a consensus view now. But I think when it comes to inflation, the burden of proof has to be on the inflationists, right? Because there's been a certain group of people who for the last 30 or 40 years have been calling for inflation. And, you know, to your point from before, I think they might have missed some of those really key factors like um, demographics or the impact of technology or 
more recently, kind of the debt overhang that might be really slowing down growth. As you mentioned before, right, a lot of these these previous government programs haven't actually translated into broad money supply growth, right? You've kind of seen an increase in M1, but now what you're really seeing is money getting out into the real economy. Um, last year, the, the broad money supply growth um, accelerated by 25%, right? And, it, and it's even getting more pronounced now. So maybe this would be a good time to transition into this issue of the steepening yield curve, right? Which one way of looking at this is saying, hey, this is, this is really great. We've got economic activity coming back online. Um, it, it seems like some of these dollars that are out there are actually having an impact. But on the other hand, if the yield curve gets too steep and some of those long dated bonds, uh, the yields rise too much, then it becomes a real problem uh, for the federal government. So talk a little bit about um, the steepening of the yield curve and how kind of the, the powers that be are thinking about it. Absolutely. So if you look at the Treasury yield curve, uh, you have a variety of different durations, right? You have really short treasuries uh, that are just you know, weeks or months in duration, and then you have all the way up to the third year. And some countries have even longer, but that's kind of the traditional uh, uh, you know, spectrum. And the 10 year is kind of the, the key benchmark. That's kind of the key long-term yield, even though you do have some of those, those, those really long uh, uh, treasuries. Uh, and, uh, and normally, of course, the longer ones pay you a higher yield than the shorter ones because you're, you're agreeing to lock your money up for a longer period of time which takes on more inflation risk and, and kind of a long-term outlook on the health of the country. Uh, but uh, historically, sh- shortly before recessions, the yield curve inverts uh, because the, the basically, you know, uh, the growth is slowing. So people start piling into bonds uh, and they, they can capture that, that price appreciation. Because if you hold a long bond at, say, 3% uh, yield and it drops down to 2% or 1%, that bond price goes up a lot in price. And so you get a, lot, a big capital gain. So you're not just buying it for the yield, you're buying it for the capital gain. It's kind of a macro bet. Uh, and so people pile into the long end because what they're expecting is that the Fed's going to cut rates. And so they're basically front running the Fed and they drive the yield curve negative uh, where the, the you're actually getting less money for locking your money up for like 10 years than, than for three months. And then uh, they end up being correct. The Fed ends up cutting interest rates and that, un, that uninverts the yield curve uh, and then normally, then you start to get as as you get stimulus, as you get monetary, uh, you know, uh, policy response, as you get, you know, the bottom of a recession, the recovery, uh, that long end starts steeping again because now it's expecting more economic activity, a little bit more inflation, and it pushes that back up. And they're also starting to expect that at some time in the future, the Fed will start increasing interest rates, and they want to get ahead of that. Uh, and so you, you go through that kind of, you know, five to ten year cycle, pretty much, you know, every recession, uh, and. It's a little bit more challenging this time because there's so much debt in the system, especially, especially federal debt. And so federal debt, um, you know, there's there's twenty eight trillion dollars in federal debt. Uh, probably this year we're going to cross over thirty trillion. Uh, and so that, you know, that has to be very low interest rates in order to in order to avoid a kind of a fiscal spiral. Like uh, if you just do the, the, the math, I mean, if you have thir- if you have thirty trillion in debt, uh, every one percent interest you pay on that is three hundred billion dollars. And so if you have 3%, you're paying $900 billion a year in interest. Uh, and so they basically have to keep interest rates low. Uh, and, and also, like, uh, if you look at the stock market, uh, we've never had a higher market capitalization to GDP before. So our, uh, if you look at kind of a, our overall economic consumption, it's very tied to asset prices, right? Because that's what makes people feel rich. That, that's, they can take out equity loans. They can, they, feel, you know, they can sell a couple of their shares and go buy something. Uh, and that kind of is a wealth effect. And, it, and so historically, if, if yields start to rise, that can put some pressure on the stock market, ironically, uh, but different parts of it. And so, for example, there are some things like the more cyclical stocks like banks or energy 
or industrials. They, they, they do well on a steepening yield curve because it means economic activity is picking up usually, and they're doing fine. The things that run into some trouble is that, you know, over the past 10 years, we've, you know, technology stocks have outperformed everything else. I mean, you want to be in the FANG stocks pretty much. And they, I mean, a lot of it was fundamental driven. They did very, very well in terms of revenue, earnings, cash flow, balance sheets, at least most of them. Uh, and then, but as you got into late 2019 or uh, into 2020, you actually had their stock prices decouple from their fundamentals in most cases, especially Apple was kind of the one that did it the most where their fundamentals did fine, not, not, not particularly special. They did fine, but then their stock price doubled in a year. Uh, and so you had that, that basically Apple had its highest, you know, ever valuation uh, compared to its earnings, compared to some of its other metrics. And a lot of that is because investors, they said, okay, interest rates are less than 1%. Uh, I can't hold cash. I'm afraid to hold cyclicals and banks and energy. That's just, you know, dead money. And so people just piled in technology at almost any price. Uh, and so now that you have yields rising, that justification of super low interest rates is slowly going away. And so you're seeing a disproportionate amount of pressure on uh, those types of, of long duration kind of tech companies that are more of a deflation bet in some ways. Uh, and that, you know, if you look back in the market leadership of, say, 2008, I mean, the biggest company in the index was ExxonMobil. Uh, and so now because the because the S&P is so tech focused now, those rising interest rates have a more disproportional effect, uh, you know, kind of pressuring some of its prices compared to if this was, you know, like a different cycle. And that's kind of the issue we're running into now. It also puts pressure on mortgage rates. So mortgage rates are rising uh, and that's, you know, low mortgage rates is, is in large part what makes homes affordable. Right. Because even though home prices have gone up a lot, home payments have not really gone up because you had that offsetting factor of, of record low mortgage rates. Uh, and so if you start to get mortgage rates rising, uh, that prices out homes for a lot of people and that can start kind of slowing the economy. And so that it's kind of one of those things where the, the steepening yield curve is good until it gets steep enough that it actually could start to slow down the economic recovery and kind of shoot itself in the foot. Yeah. So. It really seems like the Fed has painted themselves into a pretty undesirable corner to be in because sum, uh, summing up a lot of what you just said, you know, one tool that the Fed has really relied on to get through COVID is this idea of the wealth effect, right? So as we had the deflationary shock of COVID and a lot of economic activity went offline, um, the Federal Bank kind of got involved. They lowered interest rates. They printed a lot of money um, to kind of help us get through that deflationary hole. And that had a real impact on financial assets, uh, specifically longer duration financial assets. That's kind of mortgages. It's also risky tech stocks, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the reason that they did wet that was that people felt more wealthy and that hopefully they would spend more money and that that would actually help offset some of that deflation. Well, now what you're seeing is real economic activity coming back online. So what was kind of a helpful bridge, right, for us to get from here to there is now translating into uh, you know, asset bubbles. And I think the Fed looks at some of the activity around things like GameStop or even some of these NFTs selling for huge amounts of money. And, and they don't love that amount of speculation, but it's hard for them because on the one hand, they, they don't like the amount of speculation that's going on in some of these riskier, longer duration assets. But at the same time, they've, they've borrowed so much that they really can't let um, the debt, you know, the yields normalize to anything that looks like uh, kind of in line of what they're thinking. So I think that really brings us to our next uh, kind of final final option for uh, central banks and, and governments, which is some form of currency devaluation or financial repression. So I know you've talked a lot about um, yield curve control, right? And what kind of holding rates uh, steady. 
um, while, you know, while inflation kind of picks up would look like. And there's a whole bunch of different ways that the Fed could even think about implementing something like yield curve control. So can you talk a little bit about um, how the Fed might be thinking about this? What are some of the different ways that they could implement yield, yield curve control? And what would the impact on markets be? Yeah, I, I really wouldn't want to be Jerome Powell in this environment because there, there really is there really yeah there really is no good solution here. You're choosing between bad options, and so if you go back to say the Greenspan era, there were good choices. Like you could have uh, kind of avoided getting to this part in the cycle. You didn't have to kind of uh, you know drop interest rates super low and reflate asset prices so much every time because you had less debt in the system. You could have had a just a, a more sensible kind of you know policy response. Uh, but but we have because we have built up these bubbles, uh, it's extremely difficult for them to unwind it. In fact, if they try to unwind it, like you know, like they were um, uh, doing quantitative tightening back in 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 2019, and the treasury market broke, uh, and you know, they're, they're basically through the repo market. But basically, that was essentially a T-bill oversupply problem, and so the Fed had to start expanding their balance sheet to buy T-bills. And so overall, they don't really have any good solutions. And historically. That's actually, it's not a unique thing in history. If you go back, you just, uh, you know, through American history, but then even just through other countries and through centuries, when you get to kind of the end of a long-term debt bubble, uh, usually the answer is it, what ends up happening is currency devaluation. Uh, and so they basically, you know, some of the debts get get defaulted on and restructured, but really it's, it's you change that denominator, the currency itself. And so, for example, if you look back in the 1940s, which is the only other time in history where the, the U.S. government got to over 100% debt to GDP, uh, they did yield curve control, where the Federal Reserve said, okay, we're going to buy treasuries, we're going to hold their long yields below 2.5%. And the mechanism they do that is by being willing to buy any treasuries that try to go over that yield. They said, we have an open bid for any, any treasuries that go over that, and we can print money to enforce that bid. And so basically what they're doing in that situation is they're, they, they're exerting control, fully manipulating the yield curve, but then their release valve is the currency. They're sacrificing the strength of the currency. They're losing control of their balance sheet to peg a yield. And they, I mean, the Federal Reserve hated that back in, in, in 1940. They, the, the Treasury basically bullied them into doing it. They didn't really want to do it, but the Treasury ne needed to be financed to, for the war. Uh, and even when the war ended, the Fed's like, we can stop now, guys, right? We can, we can. And then the Treasury's like, no, no, we still have a couple more things. And so they actually held that until like 1951. Uh, and the Fed just, they hated all of that. And uh, we're kind of gearing towards that again, where if you get yields rise, the Federal Reserve at some point has to basically cap yields. Uh, and they don't want to. They've actually wrote in their meeting minutes like, hey, we looked, we looked into the 1940s. We, we prefer not to have that happen, but it's, it's on the table. Uh, and they're also looking at uh, Australia and Japan because they're currently doing limited forms of yield curve control. It's not as extreme as the, the Federal Reserve in the 1940s, but for example, Australia is pegging its three-year yield. And if you look at their yield curve, it, like, the three-year is totally artificial because everything else is smooth. And then the three-year is like, held artificially low because the, the Bank of Australia has an open bid to buy three-year treasuries. And, and they've, they've aggressively defended that peg. Uh, and so I, you know, I think their peg's too low. I think they... You know, it'd be easier to defend it if it's a little bit higher. But you know, they're they're going all out defending this artificially low peg, and the, you know, the Fed has said they're watching those sort of situations. And they're also, uh, you know, it's funny. Shortly before the pandemic, uh, they in February 2020 they published uh, the Federal Reserve published a piece on yield curve control. They basically analyzed 1940s, and it means they started working on that paper in the you know late 2019, uh, and so they were already kind of aware how this prob this end game probably goes. 
and they don't you know it's it's like their last toolkit like that's their because they basically give up independence they give up uh the size of the balance sheet in order to peg a yield and so they they prefer not to do it so their other tools ahead of that are one is they can just what they're doing now which is waiting and watching so until th until things get really disorderly they don't have to step in they can just say okay yields are going up that's healthy and they can just you know do their they can kind of talk it down a little bit and say oh it's it's healthy it's fine and you know it is because we I, you know i do think that the market overall if there was less, especially if there's less debt in the system would be healthier with higher yields and so they're, but they're sitting there saying okay we're going to watch that it's fine and then you have a couple of disorderly days uh and so i you know i actually warned about those a couple of weeks ago in my february newsletter and they, I mean, in some ways they played out a little bit faster than I would have guessed, but we started to have some of this disorderly uh, stuff in the markets and the Fed saying, okay, that's fine. And not really until it would get kind of persistently messy, uh, would they step in? And if, you know, from there, they have a couple options. One is uh, they can extend the SLR rules change. And so back in March of last year in 2020, during the pandemic, they, they basically eased a rule uh, for bank leverage that allows them to buy more treasuries. Uh, and uh, so that's been kind of one of the sources of demand for treasuries is, is, is large commercial banks are able to basically hold more treasuries. Uh, and if they don't extend that rule that expires at the end of March here, uh, banks can't hold as many treasuries. Uh, and so that's, you know, that could put further pressure on, on the long end of the curve. The other thing they could do, uh, so they, basically they could choose to extend that for like another six months, another year. Uh, but then you get into the problem of like, you know, that nothing is ever so permanent as a temporary government program. That, that's kind of the trap they fall into. Kind of like how the going off the gold standard was temporary. And it's just, you know, we're, we're 50 years into in temporary. Uh, so they're, exactly. And so if they if, if they keep kicking the can down the road for that SLR change, uh, that, that, that could become kind of outright permanent, uh, de facto permanent. Uh, then you can look at Operation Twist, which is where, and they've done it, I think, twice before, where they can sell some of their T-bills and use that cash to buy T-bonds. So they, they sell some of the short end of the curve, which ironically, like the market kind of needs that right now. There's actually, in some ways, there's too much liquidity compared to the amount of T-bills in the system. And so it actually would solve two problems with one move where they, you know, it's kind of like a Band-Aid, but they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to give you more T-bills uh, and then we're going to use that money to buy more T-bonds. And that would be kind of a, a lighter touch because it doesn't affect the overall size of their balance sheet. Uh, it just rearranges their balance sheet a little bit more towards the long end. And so that that's one of their, something they'd probably resort to first. Uh, and then their, their nuclear option is, is yield curve control, where they say, okay, we're going to just totally override, you know, one or all parts of the yield curve. Uh, you can either do one part like Australia is doing, uh, or you can do the extreme, just whole yield curve gets controlled. Uh, but that's that's their that's their last option. Uh, now they might do. I mean, it, even that like it has a spectrum. I mean, their last option would be to do the entire like 1940s full yield curve control. Uh, but they might resort to what Australia is doing with with one of their their yields. And Japan showed, for example, that uh, if you set the peg appropriately, uh, sometimes doing yield curve control can uh, result in in less QE. Than, than not. And and so Japan actually reduced their QE by shifting to yield curve control uh, because it basically, the market knows what number the Fed's targeting exactly. And so the market in some ways becomes self-regulating. Uh, and so, because it, let's say yields are, you know, let's say the 10 years can be pegged at 2%. If yields start to get above that, let's say they go up to 2.2%, uh, I, I can say, okay, I'll buy them at 2.1% at because I know I can sell them to the Fed at 2%. And so I, basically the market starts kind of regulating itself 
but you know, if you do get that extreme inflation spike, which was what we saw in the 1940s, I mean, inflation would go to the double digits, and they would just hold the yield flat at 2.5%, and they had to greatly expand their treasuries to do that. And so, you know, it's 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 going to be interesting to watch as we, as we move forward if we do get some of these inflation spikes. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's say your worst nightmare is realized, and effective tomorrow, you are the acting uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve. So. Goodbye, Jerome Powell. Hello, Lynn Alden. Uh, what are some of the policies that you would choose? Yeah, basically that's the thing. There's, I wouldn't be popular because I there's no there's no good solutions. Because if I say okay, this is this is ridiculous. All this money printing has got to stop. And then as soon as I do that, the treasury market explodes and just goes to liquid and financial things crash. And it just it, basically you just have a death spiral. Uh, or you just keep going, but then you you're basically building the next bubble. And so, I mean, things I wouldn't do, like I wouldn't do the buying of corporate bonds at all. I think that's, that's, I wouldn't do that. Uh, really, I would just shift towards uh, basically uh, doing kind of what he's doing is saying, okay, I'm going to let the market go where it's going to go until it gets, until I have to step in and then step in in the most minimal way possible. Uh, but really, I wouldn't take the job because I, I, the, the times to, to fix this were decades ago. And here, now you're just doing damage control. Yeah, it just really seems like there are no good options here. And one direction it, it kind of seems like we're headed now is some major redistribution of wealth, right? Ray Dalio talks about this in his studies on kind of big debt crises that after a deleveraging of this scale, there's kind of a, a major transference of wealth, right? From kind of the, the elite wealthy haves to the, uh, the have-nots. And it seems like that might be a direction that we're heading in. And, you know, the stimulus, uh, kind of the stimulus payments that people received during the pandemic People made jokes. I, I know they're not very big, but it might set a really important precedent, right? And once people get used to taking uh, free money from the government, it's going to be really hard to transition people off of that. And, you know, I forget who said this, but there is nothing so permanent as, a, you know, a temporary government program. So what, what are your thoughts? Do you think we're headed towards some sort of, um, you know, redistribution of wealth? And if so, what does that look like? That seems to be the general trend. And of course, there's different ways to, to do it. Uh, and so in some in, in some areas, you have like, a, you know, a, a, a bigger tax on the wealthy, then you, you distribute that to other people. Other times they just have a currency devaluation and people holding a lot of bonds and cash are the ones that, that lose out, whereas people that are more indebted end up benefiting from that, that currency devaluation. And so ironically, if you look at the 1940s, and the 1970s, which were the only two inflationary decades uh, of the past century, wealth concentration decreased in both of those decades. Uh, partly, you know, in, in the 1940s, uh, you, had, you had pretty high taxes. I mean, that, that's when you had those, the nominal tax brackets on the wealthy were extremely high, like com comically high, like 90%. Uh, now, few people actually paid those numbers because there were all sorts of loopholes and, and it was, you know, but you had basically very high taxes on the wealthy and then you had inflation. Uh, and so anyone with debts enjoyed that. And if you were, you know, a GI bill, you got like your 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 education or training paid for. Uh, if you were blue collar, you, you basically got kind of a, a job assistance because you were doing all these, you know, massive domestic programs from the fiscal government. Now, the the thing there was that they really kind of um, they kind of nailed that turn well because you had all that kind of increase in government spending and stuff. But then when the war ended, uh, they did kind of turn in towards austerity, and so you basically had. Uh, uh, fiscal debt stopped going up. Uh, it didn't. They never paid it off, but it stopped going up uh, for several years, and then GDP grew and caught, kind of caught up with it. Uh, and then eventually, they they basically, you know, they were able to reduce their federal debt as a percentage of GDP. Uh, and so there, you know, there were winners and losers there. 
but they, they managed to avoid a, a spiral towards ever higher inflation and, and ever larger government uh, during that period. And so we'll see how well they can kind of stick the turn this time. I, this might be harder because last time the, the United States was the largest creditor nation, meaning we owned more foreign assets than foreigners owned of our assets. We had a, a, a trade surplus. Uh, now we have, you know, the, we're the world's largest debtor nation. So foreigners own more American assets than Americans own of foreign assets. We have a structural trade deficit. Uh, and uh, a lot of this kind of issues, partially it's because we have a very top heavy, you know, population. And then also we just have the highest uh, healthcare spending per capita in the world by far. Uh, and so we have kind of a lot of these kind of structural uh, budget issues that I think are going to be very hard for them to solve. And so uh, I like some of the things that are, that would benefit from inflation and persistently negative real yields. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about inflation because there are sort of two narratives that are out there. And one popular narrative goes like this, right? People just kind of say, okay, we're going to let inflation run hot for a little bit, right? And that's going to reduce the real value of the debt. That's going to act as sort of a, a transference of wealth from people that have financial assets into wages. And that's going to kind of rebalance everything, right? And people kind of talk in a pretty blase way about that. And then there's another group of people that say, well, hold on one second. You know, if there's inflation, that's actually a sign that the government is broken, right? And when there are periods of rampant inflation in history, you probably wouldn't have wanted to live through a time like that, right? Because it means something is fundamentally flawed in the economy and in times of inflation tend to, to translate into social unrest or some really unpleasant stuff. So, you know, if we do get some type of inflation, what are your thoughts on how that actually, what does that actually look like? Well, I think that's the big question because it's going to, you know, it, basically depending on what kind of inflation it is, how big it is, it's going to get messy because the, the Fed can't really raise rates too much because then you, then the fiscal government is, is paying, you know, increasingly high yields. We, we already talked about the numbers. I mean, if you pay a little bit over 3% average yield on a, on a $30 trillion debt, you're paying a trillion dollars in debt, uh, I mean, in interest per year. And so... Uh, they're basically probably going to be locked into a situation like the 40s where they have to, you know, be basically suppress yields almost regardless of what inflation does. Uh, and um, that's, you know, that has consequences. And I think, you know, they, they can talk it down. Like they can say, you know, they're not going to say outright, okay, we're going we're gonna to inflate away the debt um, and, you know, bondholders are going to be screwed over. Uh, you know, they're, it's funny because they're, they're, if you read their meeting minutes, they are pretty, like, blunt in many ways. Uh, like they're like, hey, we want to keep yields low, so we're we're gonna potentially buy more long end of the curve. Like they're just kind of, and they're saying, okay, yield curve control is on the table as an option, uh, but they'll never say like deficit monetization, uh, and they'll never say, uh, you know, we're gonna hold yields low to inflate away part of the debt. There's there's certain like sentences they can't say, but they can say, okay, we're gonna, we think inflation is gonna be transitory. So even though I know inflation looks high, let's say we get you know a three percent print, like I know it looks high, but it's not gonna be persistent. So we're gonna hold yields at zero, and then when it it starts to become persistent, that's when that's when it gets kind of messy. And I think that's that's gonna be kind of the needle they're gonna try to thread. And I think they might then try to tighten, but then they run into one of those other problems where then something crashes or breaks. And they, they don't really have a choice but to stay dovish even when inflation's hot. And that's the big risk. That's when you get a, an outright currency devaluation where, you know, uh, gold, Bitcoin, uh, commodities basically soar in, in, in dollar terms. All right. So uh, you just mentioned Bitcoin. Uh, so I'd love to make the transition here to kind of talking about Bitcoin and digital assets. And specifically, I'd love to get your thoughts on what's driving this market right now. So let's let's kind of focus on Bitcoin first. And 
you know, again, there's kind of a competing set of narratives here where on the one hand, you know, Bitcoin kind of tends to trade around this uh, big four-year supply cycle, right, which is anchored around the halvening. Uh, there's a very steep kind of run up, uh, followed by a, a prolonged bear market, and then it all kind of repeats. On the other hand, we talked earlier about uh, this kind of bubble in risky, longer duration assets. And as you started to see the yield curve steepen uh, in recent days, Bitcoin has started to sell off, which kind of lends some credence to that rumor. So, I mean, tell me, how do, how do you think about uh, modeling uh, Bitcoin? What is driving the price increase? What are some of the inputs that go into your thinking? So I think the biggest determinant is that four-year cycle uh, and that, that adoption cycle. And so what I've generally found is that Bitcoin has these temporary correlations uh, that, that's kind of noise along that path. So it can be correlated to the inflation versus reflation trade, right? So when you have kind of a risk-off day where the dollar strengthens and you have kind of a, you know, uh, kind of a risk-off move in stocks, generally Bitcoin doesn't do great those days. Um, and but and, and so for and also like if you have a liquidity crisis like we had in March 2020, Bitcoin gets hit you know harder than anything else pretty much. Uh, and so it's it's vulnerable to liquidity shocks. It's vulnerable to these kind of risk on risk off days. Uh, it's but um, it, it largely follows its own cycle. And so for example, uh, real yields bottomed in the end of August 2020. That's when they they went down to negative 1.08 percent. If you if you measure the 10 year yield compared to 10 year break evens, uh, and that's also when gold topped uh, at least temporarily. It, it, so gold's been in a big correction. Uh, we also saw a, to a local top in a lot of those Nasdaq names. Uh, and some of those managed to then slowly push to new all-time highs later in the year. But that still was a pretty significant top for some of them, along with gold having so far been the top. Uh, and so you already saw that kind of shift away from that, uh, those long-duration names, and when, when yields started going up from August. Uh, but ironically, that's when Bitcoin took off. And so Bitcoin totally decoupled uh, from gold and from those other names. Now, in the past several weeks, it's been it's been somewhat more correlated with those names, and that that again that makes sense. I mean, Bitcoin has these temporary correlations, but really, what's going to drive Bitcoin is the level of institutional adoption uh, and, and and retail adoption. And so, if if the overall numbers of of buyers keep being interested in, in buying more Bitcoin, if corporations want to hold it uh, as you know, maybe not like say MicroStrategy where they they convert their entire treasury to Bitcoin, but it more like Square where they want to have some of their you know, kind of reserves in Bitcoin as a hedge, uh, you know, that, that can continue driving Bitcoin. And so I, overall, I think the long-term thing, uh, you know, in any given kind of four-year cycle is that that supply shock, the ongoing demand, and then the question of, you know, what accelerates demand or what kind of holds demand back. Uh, and then it's only those kind of temporary correlations that you have to worry about if you're, say, a trader, if you're leveraged, uh, or if you're just going to manage your position size relative to your other assets. What do you think about corporates putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet? I think it makes sense, especially in the way that Square is doing it, because I mean, Square has something like five percent of their cash in Bitcoin now, and so you know, if, if they don't really have to care about the volatility, right? So if, if Bitcoin gets cut in half or if it doubles, it's not the end of the world, uh, you know, for the for their profit, uh, but it basically hedges the rest of their cash position. So if if you know, there's a big currency devaluation, people flock into Bitcoin. Bitcoin goes up 10x. Uh, and their cash position kind of loses purchasing power. Well, that small Bitcoin position just just basically protected their entire cash position. Uh, and, but they don't really open themselves up to, you know, if 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 say Jack Dorsey's wrong about Bitcoin and it, it ends up being a bearish thing, he he kind of doesn't make money in the long term on that position. 
uh, he took essentially no risk by doing it. Whereas MicroStrategy went all in, which is of course you you if Bitcoin goes up 10x, then you've 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 utterly transformed your company. Uh, but if Bitcoin doesn't do well, then Michael Saylor is open to you know all sorts of issues from that. And so I th I think you know for many corporations it makes sense to do what Square did, where if they're not hardcore like they haven't gone down the rabbit hole and they're like super high conviction on Bitcoin, uh, but they've they've gone down enough to see the the value there. And they say, okay, you know, it makes sense to have a non-zero position. And that's also what I've, what I've, you know, in my public articles on Bitcoin, been, been, you know, proposing since the summer of, of uh, 2020, that you know, whatever percentage you want to hold, probably zero is not the right percentage. Uh, and so my, my, I basically was advocating for non-zero positions, and then people can dial that up based on their conviction, based on their own unique circumstances. But that zero is probably not the right number. So talk to me a little bit about how you view the relationship between Bitcoin and gold, because at this point, you kind of hear even from, I'd say, pretty mainstream financial pundits, uh, gold and Bitcoin being used in the same sentence um, as kind of a, a debasement trade. Um, are there situations where you might want to own gold, but but not Bitcoin or the other way around? Just in general, what do you think about the relationship between those two assets? Well, there's certainly an overlap. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's an overlap in the community a little bit. There's also, you know, animosity between the two communities. Uh, but really, the, I mean, there's a couple assets you can hold that are completely outside of the financial system. And so when you're in the financial system, you're you're subject to counterparty risk. You're subject to business hours, right? So it's like you, there's only I have to ask permission to get money out of my bank. I have to ask permission to get money out of my brokerage. Whereas, like, you know, if you have physical coins and bars, uh, that's in your own possession. Uh, and similarly, if you hold a wad of cash, you know, it might not be the best long term value, but that's, you know, one of the best things you can have if you just absolutely need something off the grid and that you need to, you know, spend money right now, a wad of cash uh, and then Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, so Bitcoin is a self custody thing. You don't need anyone's permission to run it. Now, I mean, there are I can imagine situations where you'd rather hold gold. I mean, if your entire area lost power and, you know, you want you want to have like gold or silver or cash. That's where you want like some of those things. Uh, whereas Bitcoin's great because it's mobile. And so if you want to transfer wealth from one country to another country, good luck with gold. Uh, getting that through an airport in any in any kind of reasonable size. Whereas Bitcoin, you can have it on your phone. You can have it on a little USB drive. You can have it near. It, you can memorize uh, twelve words and 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 go through and basically you you have completely mobile wealth. And so they each have different use cases. Obviously, Bitcoin, as a smaller, newer, higher-performing asset class, uh, is kind of the, it's the new kid on the block, and so that's taking market share. Uh, whereas gold is the more kind of traditional store of value, uh, scarce asset. And so I, I still like having you know, multiple types of stores of value in my overall net worth. So I have gold, I have silver, I have Bitcoin, I have other commodity. Uh, companies, commodities, uh, exposures like that. So I have, I have uranium exposure, I have copper exposure, uh, I have energy exposure. And so I, I've kind of diversified my inflation hedges. Uh, and I've also diversified my, my off the grid hedges. So gold, silver, platinum, Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. So beyond Bitcoin, what are your thoughts on the rest of the crypto ecosystem? Uh, I, I know you've put out a lot of actually really good information on Ethereum. Uh, so why don't we start there? What are your thoughts on that asset overall? Well, so I think I think smart contracts are a useful uh, tool. Like I think it's you know it's good that some of those platforms exist. Uh, I think decentralized exchanges are a good thing, and I think decentralized liquidity providers are a good thing. Uh, but then the main question from there is, um, 
you know, do the, do the, well, there's a couple of things. One is if you have, you have, pro, you have protocol specific issues, like Ethereum's going through a, an issue now where it's transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, they have uh, throughput issues, uh, which are more of a problem for Ethereum than Bitcoin because Bitcoin, you know, the transactions tend to be pretty high value. Uh, and there's also, there are, uh, you know, off-chain solutions for, for smaller transfers of value. Uh, whereas Ethereum, it's a, it's a more high velocity, smaller average transaction size network, and the transactions are more complex. And so if you're if you're paying a very high fee to do a Uniswap trade or just to move your tokens around, that's more of a problem for that that network. It's supposed it's kind of in order to work as as you'd expect it to, the fee should be pretty cheap. Uh, and so it's it basically the success uh, you know uh, of using it kind of hurts itself. And so we see things like tether transactions started moving more and more towards tron of all things uh at least a smaller tether transaction so we got to the point where where more tether transactions are occurring on tron than on ethereum because of the high fees even though there's more settlement value in tether on ethereum because the high the high transaction uh size ones still stay on ethereum and so overall you have that technical risk of you know, I've basically changing the engine while you're driving, right? So we have a, we're driving the car, we have an operational blockchain, and we want to go ahead and change everything about it. And that's, of course, just a, a very challenging technical uh, thing to go through. Uh, and uh, then there's the, the kind of the broader question of even if you have a very successful utility protocol, do the tokens become money? Like, do the tokens accrue monetary value in the long run? Uh, and you know, there's that there's that paper from 2017 from John Pfeffer that argued that they probably would not. That even if you were to have you know high uh, quote GDP in that ecosystem of, of utility tokens, that it be that those tokens would be treated more like working capital, uh, and so they wouldn't you know kind of accrue value in the same way that Bitcoin might. And it doesn't really preclude. Like, it doesn't mean they can accrue monetary value, but it means they have to. They're, they're basically whether or not they're going to be monetary value is largely separate. So you can have the, the, the ecosystem grow very large where the, the token value kind of stagnates. And in some ways, you know, that, that, that paper, if you go back, you know, that was published in, in late 2017. And since then, you know, the amount of value settled on Ethereum has gone up substantially. It's like tripled. Uh, whereas the market cap is, is roughly where it was uh, three years ago. You know, briefly got a lot higher, you know, since the correction. I haven't checked it in the last couple of days, but it's, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of a, a, the same market cap. So the market cap has not increased at the same rate as the transaction value as. Uh, and so that, that's kind of my concerns with the, the overall kind of utility protocols is that I, while I'm glad they exist, and I think there's interesting development being done there. It, I haven't seen a compelling case of why I'd want to hold a significant amount of their tokens long term. Yeah, so, so what do you think about the development of the entire crypto ecosystem over the course of the next, say, 10 years? Because I think even the proponents kind of fall on one of two different spectrums, right? Which you've got kind of, for lack of a better term, the, the Bitcoin maximalist, right? And they say, hey, look, I, I really understand um, Bitcoin. It's a, it's a digital gold. It's a store of value, pristine collateral, kind of all of those arguments. I, I really understand how this is a hedge against central bank digital currencies. And that's going to, I'm, I'm very confident uh, that that's going to have value over the course of the next you know, basically it's lifetime. Uh, and then, you know, there's this kind of other view where you look at and say, well, well, really what crypto is at a high level is it's a different way. It's a it's a governance and incentive mechanism. Right. And and it's this very cool new way of structuring and, and owning networks. And, and that's going to allow you to do all this really cool stuff, kind of starting with financial markets, but branching into all of these other different types of companies. That's that's really going to be a super disruptive force um, over the course of the next five, ten, you know, however many years. So. 
you know, if you had to kind of pick between those two narratives, where, where do you fall on that spectrum? A little bit of both. I mean, I think it, it still is an open question uh, because, I mean, the last thing you want to do is underestimate it. Like, you know, all, all those quotes of, of people saying about the Internet, like, uh, oh, it's like it's never going to mount to much. And like, you know, <laughs> right. It's, you don't uh, it's be never going to be more valuable than the fax machine. Uh, someone exactly. said that. I think yeah. Paul yeah. You don't want to you don't want to be like quoted like that 20 years later. Uh, and so, there, you know, there, there is certainly a lot of potential there. Uh, but at the same side, you know, it's, it's like one of those things where when something's new, it's like you want to apply it to everything even things that it might not be best applicable for, or you might overstate how, how, how what percentage of people want to have decentralized apps. So a lot of people like centralization. A lot of people just want things to be easy. They trust their providers. Uh, and there's only kind of a small percentage of us that might want to have just more kind of independence in that way. And so you could potentially be, be overestimating the market size of, of certainly these applications. I do think that, you know, some of these like, uh, uh, highly expensive non-fungible token prices will, will maybe not look be looked too favorably on years from now so so you're uh, not going out and buying those little uh those little crypto punks selling for seven hundred thousand dollars or whatever they're no selling i'd rather for. buy like i'd rather buy like 12 bitcoins you know for that price or whatever the number is uh and so <laughs> yeah. you know overall i think that there's there's a lot of interesting potential uh, I do think that, you know, like we talked about, I think decentralized exchanges in some form are here to stay. I think decentralized liquidity providers are here to stay. The question is how big they get. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, if you look at the Lightning Network, I think that there's really interesting developments there. Uh, and so that's that's one of those things where because the Lightning Network is not really about trading, it hasn't blown up in the same way that, that, that DeFi has on Ethereum. Uh, but there are, you know, really kind of interesting developments happening that slowly but surely uh, and it doesn't might might not get as much press, but for example, now you have major exchanges using Lightning. Uh, you know that's kind of a, a recent development, uh, more and more. Uh, and then of course we have uh, Strike Global, where you're you're basically doing fiat to Bitcoin back to fiat transactions, and it's it basically it's an improvement over uh, international remittance and international um, you know currency changes, international money flows, and then you know going back to the utility protocols. I mean, even that uses stable coins as an option, so you can do you can do fiat to Bitcoin to stable coin on the other side. Uh, and so I do think that that stable coins are are here to stay for a while, and I do think that some of these applications are interesting. You also have things like Sphinx Chat, where you can basically you know you connect your basically you you it kind of reads out spam, uh, and it's a useful way to do micropayments. Uh, and so I do think that this, the whole space is just worth watching. I do think that 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 stable coins, some degree of smart contracts, and some of these uh, improvements over kind of these legacy plumbing systems for finances are a net benefit. Yeah, absolutely. The way that I sort of think about it is, there was actually a game that came out uh, in the early 2000s called Dot Bomb, and it was a board game. It, it kind of made fun of every really stupid idea from, you know, the dot-com crash. It was like, you know, pets.com and, you know, all this other stuff. And it's funny because right now, a lot of the ideas that got made fun of in that game are some of the unicorns that you see today, right? So, you know, pets.com kind of became chewy. There's, uh, you know, grocery delivery. There's ride hailing in the form of Uber. And, you know, I think one of the big things that, that changed, right, is um, actually the development of the iPhone, right? And, people didn't really realize that you were missing this critical piece of infrastructure to make all these companies viable, which was this, this little remote control uh, to your world, right? And maybe ride sharing didn't make a whole lot of sense if 
you know, you're dialing up on this, this old modem and you got to do it on your computer and then like wait for the guy outside and it takes forever. But you know, if you have this little, you know, super powered computer in your pocket and you can type it in anywhere that you are in a, you know, and a, a cab appears instantly, you know, that's suddenly much more of a powerful company. And even if you look at something like eyeballs, right, which people look back and say, man, they're so stupid. Like, how do we think eyeballs were you know, the only thing that mattered and profits don't count. But if you look at a lot of the companies today, you know, maybe that doesn't seem so crazy anymore. Right. And we're kind of, uh, you know, reverting back to that camp. And I, th- I think when you look at the crypto ecosystem overall, there are kind of flashes of brilliance, but you get the sense that maybe this is way too early. Like there are elements of kind of transparency in decentralized finance, which are really appealing, but it's still so early and the UI is still so rough that you say, ah, I don't really think a lot of this stuff makes sense. And they're, they're pretty interesting kind of shifts in, in market dynamics as well. Like the, the whole 24-7, uh, you know, nature of crypto markets in general, that feels like a permanent shift, right? And if you look at digitization and uh, people just kind of being on call 24-7, that feels like a the continuation of a really big trend that's been going on for a long time. And it doesn't seem like that's going to reverse. So I kind of think we're at this point in crypto where we haven't really had our iPhone moment yet. And you haven't had yeah whatever that piece of infrastructure or that inflection point is that makes a lot of this stuff just fall into place and say, ah, yes, this is obvious. This makes a lot of sense. But I think the people who are deep enough in the ecosystem, they can kind of feel like there's some magic here. There's something there. Um, and a lot of this stuff is, is permanent. And it's not going to go away. Yeah, I think that's it's one of those things where, you know, even if you go back to the dot-com bubble, there were companies that we know today that were back then. I mean, Amazon was part of the dot-com bubble, uh, and their stock price got ahead of themselves uh, temporarily, but they were one of the ones that, that yeah. really did make right. use of the internet and, and really kind of came out as a giant. Yeah. And, I mean, even looking at Bitcoin, uh, that is one of those things where uh, finally a, a piece of the puzzle came in. And so a lot, you know, what Satoshi did was, like, he didn't invent blockchain uh, he just basically took existing things that were kind of separate and he solved the problem that people have been trying to solve with the right mix of solutions. And so Bitcoin was the first one to succeed on, say, eCash in ways that the previous types of eCash didn't. Uh, and so I think it's like we're seeing that now and we'll see kind of the, the, the wars between the utility protocols and we'll see if we end up with multiple utility protocols or if we end up with kind of one or two dominant utility protocols. We'll see how that sorts out. Uh, but overall, I do think that the overall industry has, has a ton of promise. And like I said, I'm really watching the, the strike global thing to see, you know, to what extent that takes off. Uh, I do think it's good that a lot of these programs are kind of poking the existing system and, and kind of finding ways to do things better. Uh, and it's just it's a shame that there's a lot of scams in the industry uh, that, you know, it's, it's kind of it's kind of tied to speculation. And so people, you know, they naturally pour into the riskier parts of the the market and then they end up by the time the cycle's done you're back in a bear market it's kind of like well how much did you benefit from it because if you got into if you got into the really, the really long tail of alts a lot of those statistically like don't make it you know a full you know a, a full couple market cycles if you got into leverage uh you might have been right uh, on certain things but then you know when the bear market you get wiped out and so it's really the people that are kind of focusing on the on the really long term and kind of keeping their risk in check that i think will, will benefit from this yeah, I do. I do want to push back just a little bit on that. Um, speculation kind of gets painted with this broadly negative brush in the space. Like if you go back to 2017, there would always be these arguments kind of pitting speculation on one hand versus utilization on the other. And, you know, people would kind of say, well, we have all this speculation right now. And it's not particularly good for anything. What we really need is real utility people using these products. And 
on the one hand, I absolutely agree with that. You do need utility, you need adoption, you need people actually using the stuff. But I think what that ignores is that speculation is the mechanism that draws all these people and capital into this space. And that ends up fueling and building the next wave of companies, right? So if you look at, you know, go back to 2017 and 2018 during that run up, you know, I'm sure there were some negative outcomes for people that got over their skis. But one thing that it did do is it brought all this tremendous attention uh, to the space and it drew in that next wave of funds and capital and entrepreneurs that kind of built some of these mega projects right now. So now kind of fast forward to um, 2021, hopefully, you know, we're, we're at least partial uh, midway through a bull run. Hopefully there's longer to go. But I think some of the companies that got started around that time are, are starting to bear fruit, right? And you're starting to see these huge rounds being raised for these, you know, tremendous infrastructure companies like, uh, you know, Chainalysis and Paxos. Um, but I think, you know, the the positive externalities of this run-up, they haven't even really been felt yet, which is that that next wave of entrepreneurs, uh, you know, that are getting bit by the bug, they are just starting to kind of go down the rabbit hole and learn about this space. And I'd be willing to bet that some of the, the real unicorns or kind of the Facebooks of crypto, those are just starting to get built. And I don't even think we've, you know, I don't even think we've we've seen them yet. I agree. Yeah, it might be one of those things where it's good that speculation happens. You just don't want to be on the wrong side of it. Uh, you, yeah. you don't want you don't want to be over leveraged or in the wrong coins. <laughs> no, you you definitely do not. <laughs> All right, Lynn, I've got a, a couple of closing questions for you here. You've already been super super generous with your time, but what is the what is the best non financial investment that you've ever made? Probably just being healthy. Like, uh, you know, focusing on eating super healthy, uh, uh, exercising, uh, and basically just, you know, kind of avoiding processed foods and, and, and kind of eating healthy. It's, it's funny, like my, my website's almost entirely financial articles. And then I have like one like health article or fitness article. And it's like, it's like not, it's like 9,000 words. And it's one of the most popular articles on the site just because it's, it's, it's kind of written the same style as all my financial articles. Like there's tons of charts and like, you know, but, but it's like all about just fitness. Uh, and so, uh, that, you know, that's, that's, I think one of been one of the most important things is just overall staying in shape, mm -hmm. uh, and, and also just travel, yeah. seeing the world. That's, that's a really good answer. Also, I would add sleep to that as well. Yes. Yes. Like there are some people that can operate on four hours of sleep. I am not one of those people. I need more sleep than that. My, my husband, my husband's one of those people. Yeah. I don't it's know, such I don't an know advantage. How. It's yeah. crazy. I wish I was like that. I wish I could sleep four hours a night, but yeah. You, uh, you do not want to see me after four hours of sleep at night. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Okay, next question. Um, what is a period of time in your life where you have felt the most at risk? That could be during a particular investment or a trade or just you know a certain development that's going on. What's just a period uh, of time in your life where you felt particularly at risk? I mean, certainly when I was getting out of college uh, because you know I graduated during the, the great financial crisis. Uh, and and had and had student debt, uh, and so uh, it, it's basically, you know, basically our society has has focused so much on that idea of taking out student debt, going through college, and of course I, I was luckily being in one of the majors where that makes sense. I mean, I did engineering, and it's you know it's one of the the things where having a, a degree really helps, and so I was able to to find a good paying job and and pay back those loans. Uh, but basically, the the idea of just being financially vulnerable, of having a negative net worth. Uh, just, you know, everything kind of felt fragile in a sense. And so that's just, you know, 
it wasn't a great time in terms of, of, of feeling vulnerable, feeling risky in a sense. Well, it seems like everything is working out now. So yeah. I'm glad that all worked out. Okay, last question for you here. If you had to make an investment in one asset and immediately after making that investment, you go into a coma for 20 years. So no knowledge, no ability to make any adjustments. What is the one asset that you're putting money into? That's tricky because I think, you know, if I were to guess the best performing one would be Bitcoin. Um, I might go with silver just because I know like it'll never like there's there's almost nothing that can go wrong when you're broke uh, after 20 years. Uh, so I guess if I had to pick only one, it'd be it'd be silver. But, um, you know, I think uh, it'll underperform a lot of other assets, uh, but it won't it won't uh, it won't go down. 50% or something over over a 20 year period, unless you buy it during a bubble. Like if you bought it in 1980, it underperformed for a long time. So it's, I would say silver when silver is not in a bubble. Was the 80s when the Hunt brothers were doing their thing? Yeah, yeah. So silver hit 50, and it you know it didn't reach that price again until 2011. Uh, but if you look at the chart, it was like silly. It was like vertical. And so as long as you don't buy silver when it's vertical, uh, you know you might it might be dead money, but it, you won't you won't lose your money and you might gain a lot of money. What an unbelievable story that is, the Hunt Brothers. It's just such an entertaining uh, chapter in market history. Yeah. Uh, but Lynn, you have been so, so generous with your time. So thank you so much for speaking to us. If our listeners want to figure out more about you or the service that you provide for investors, what is the best way to do that? Uh, so I'm at lynnalden.com and I'm also on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. Awesome. Well, Lynn, this was a ton of fun. Um, I actually, you know, I had a bunch of notes prepared for this interview and I don't even think I referred to them one single time as we were talking. So this was this was a ton of fun. I know you're probably inundated with invitations to go speak, but um, you know we'll have to do this again sometime. Sure, be happy to. Awesome, thanks, bye, Lynn. Bye. All right, guys, that's the end of episode one. You made it to the end of the show, so you deserve some kind of a award or a medal or a cookie. But right now, I'm actually going to need even more help from you. I'm really genuinely curious to see what you thought of the show, and more importantly, I want to know who you want to hear from in the future. So you can find me at Michael Ippo. That's my Twitter link. Um, not very big on the Twitter, but I'm working on it. So shoot me a message or a DM or whatever it is. Let me know what you thought of the show and who you'd like to see and hear from next. Finally, it really does make a big difference uh, if you do a short rating and review. So again, if you're listening to us on Apple, uh, please make sure to do that rating and review. And if you're listening to us on Spotify or YouTube, all you got to do is hit subscribe and all of this content is going to be delivered directly to you in the future. Thanks again for listening. Your medal's in the mail.